I just cool. There we go. We are live. Another episode of the Elite Step Podcast. I'm glad to introduce to you, Mr. Jeffrey Chu. Is that how you pronounce your surname, by the way? I don't, probably just yes, it, yes, that's correct. No, no. There you good. go. There you go. Done it well. How are you? You're right. I'm good. I'm good. good. Thanks for having me on. Good. No, great to have you on. Obviously, we've been talking back and forth on Instagram for for a little while now, sort of sharing ideas and and content and stuff like that. So it's great to have you on. Um, I guess we'll start right at the start, mate. Just for anyone who doesn't know you or even people who do know you but don't know your background, if you drop us a little intro about yourself and what you're currently doing. We spoke a little bit um, off air before we started. You got quite an interesting sort of, especially last 18 months or so. So you want to drop us a little intro, mate? Yeah, I've been coaching for seven years now. Um, I started off with strength athletes, high-performance sports like basketball, badminton, um, pretty wide variety of athletes. Um, we we're talking about me moving to London last year and the pandemic starting and I didn't have much of a client base. So that's how I started writing the book. And that did really well for me because it was kind of like a compilation of all the thoughts I've been having since I was little, like growing up into combat sports and then formalizing that knowledge with my SNC background. And yeah, I hope to write more content over the next few years. But now I've been working with um, combat sport athletes, a lot of Muay Thai fighters, wrestlers, um, some boxers, MMA athletes, and haven't, haven't chosen one sport to specialize in. I like working with all different kinds of combat athletes, and I feel like in terms of coaching principles, if you have a good system, you can have success with a lot of sports. Absolutely. How did you, um, out of interest, get into sort of like the combat athletes field? Was it through participating yourself? Was it out of, like just out of enjoyment and a passion for it? It was through participating. I've been training since I was six. Mm-hmm. So that was a pretty much only sport I cared about growing up, um, combat sports. So I spent a few years kind of going around with different sports like strength sports and basketball and all that stuff. But I think around three years ago, I decided to double down. I'm like, I want to work with combat athletes. I think I have the knowledge base to do so. Let's go all in. And then that became my quote unquote niche. Yeah. And, and I've been sticking with it ever since. Yeah. So you mentioned the ebook and I um I read that recently, actually, probably two, three months mm-hmm. ago. I read it. I really enjoyed it. I think one of the Thank things you. for me that I really enjoyed was that it was exactly the same as how I am in terms of making things simple. I'm not really a big academic. So the simpler things can be made to me, the better. So it was really easily digestible. Um, I'm sure we'll get a chance at the end for you to m- promote that for anyone who wants to give that a read as well. But let's start with it, I guess, right at the start in terms of like when you initially get an athlete, what is your sort of testing procedures? What are you looking for in say like the first couple of weeks working with a new athlete? And how does that going forward dictate your programming? Even before I get into specific testing protocols, it happens with the needs analysis, which is why I made it chapter one of the book. Um, Needs analysis can be dissecting the demands of the sport in terms of movement patterns, uh, movement velocity, uh, bioenergetics, but it really starts with me saying like, hey man, like why are you hiring me as an SNC coach to begin with? 
um, what kind of trading history do you have? What kind of injury history do you have? Like how competitive do you want to be? Do you want to be in the UFC? Do you want to be a professional one day? Or are you just training to avoid some injuries? So that sets the baseline, like right even before the testing protocols. And then once we'd establish a baseline, we say, hey, you've been training X amount of days. This is the training load that you're acclimated to currently. And then let's build the program around that. And then what they need is based on the demands of the sport. Let's say if we get a mixed martial artist, they probably need a diversified kind of portfolio in terms of strength and power and durability, robustness. Um, and then that's when I get into test specific testing protocols. I'll pick really simple protocols like um, a, a simple strength protocol, a simple power one, let's say a med ball, like a seated med ball punch to see how far the med ball goes, or I will establish a three rep max for trap bar deadlifts for close grip bench press. And then just simple markers to let me know, okay, this athlete is moving twice his body weight for a three RM. Where does he need to be to stack up to professionals in his division, his or her division? How much does he or she need to lift in order to display the strength needed to move another body the same of the same weight. And then that gives me information on how well-trained he is, how much exposure they have to um, strength training, and then whether we can kind of shift his profile into more power training. Hmm. Now that's great. And, and obviously like for me, the, the good thing about your testing procedures that I read in the ebook was it was very, very simple. It was something that, a lot of athletes can do in the gym. They don't need any fancy equipment. They don't mm -hmm. need anything like that. Um, so that's why I think it was it was really sort of applicable and you could really apply it straight away. How often then would you test um, throughout a camp? Would it be something you do at the start and maybe like two, three weeks out? Would you sort of do it every six weeks regardless? Uh, how, how do you normally run that side of things? So two things. First thing is the point I was trying to get through with my ebook was that, even though the tests are simple, it doesn't make them any less valuable. Like we can have, we can dive into the ac academic side of things, use force plates, um, use velocity-based trackers and get these like sweet numbers on their landmine punch. But what I'm concerned about is how do we use these testing numbers to guide our training? Like what, what is the use of measuring a landmine punch? Mm -hmm when we can't do anything with that data mm. it's almost like we're just testing the test we have these values and we're just kind of measuring things that aren't valuable for our time mm -hmm. and then um how often i test i also mentioned in the book i do integrated testing so instead of setting out one full day to test all these attributes i will keep track of um, metrics like estimated one, one RM based off of the loads that they've been lifting, uh, their velocity, and then pairing it with RP. And then that gives me a good kind of, it gives me good insight without having to set out a full day for testing. Yeah. If, if like their, 
working sets of fives are moving up over time, I know they're getting stronger. Mm. And that's all that matters. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, these are fighters. We're not enter entering a powerlifting competition. Yeah, they just 100%. need to be stronger. They don't need to be, they don't hit, they don't need to hit certain numbers. I like I like that as well because sometimes I feel like now testing has got almost like a bit fancy where people maybe do it for the sake of it. Um, you know, you see it a lot where testing figures and data and that they're, they're put all on like Instagram and stuff like that. It's almost mm -hmm. in some ways can be a little bit showy when really it's really simple. You don't have to really have a standalone testing day. And as you say, sometimes you might be having an athlete that comes to you and they're fighting in eight weeks. And if you've only got eight weeks of seeing them, you know, twice a week, 16 sessions before they fight, you really don't have the luxury of having taken one of those sessions out just to do standalone testing anyways. Um, yep. So I really like that. And, and I like the fact that, you know, it is basic. You know, I say this to my guys all the time. They're like, because sometimes they'll say to me, like, oh, we're going to test to see if my free rep max is getting any higher. And I'll be like, maybe soon, but you've just lifted five reps at, 10 kg more than you were three, four months ago. So I know mo more than likely your free rep max is going up anyways. Um, so it's kind of like training is testing anyways, which I really like. What, yep. what, what are like the typical things you see from testing with your combat athletes? Um, what, what would be typical strengths, typical weaknesses? And then I guess based off of that, what would you tend to prioritize in a, in a strength conditioning program for them? Um, highly dependent on their sport. You're going to see grapplers, a lot stronger on traditional compound lifts because they're performing a lot of these in the sport itself. Um, whereas striking sports are a bit more ballistic. You get way less muscle tension in the sport. And as a result, fighters in those sports don't train with a lot of heavy weights. Um, so you're going to see kind of strikers on the weaker side in terms of compound lifts um, grapplers on the stronger side and then MMA is somewhere in the middle depending on their athletic upbringing so I'm just making notes on what you're saying as well that's the best bit about having a podcast now I just make loads yeah. of notes and it's kind of like awesome. learning at, at the same time um, yeah that, and that's I also wanted to add sorry to interrupt I also wanted to add like I feel a lot of new coaches will put more of their marbles into objective testing objective numbers while the experienced coaches know that it's a mixture of subjective and objective measures sometimes it pays off to just ask how the athletes are feeling and how they're performing in sparring in the gym so true and then and then and then you mix that up with the numbers yeah so true i remember when i first started doing this and it was like one of those where when I came in, it was almost like I felt like I had to have all like these fancy spreadsheets that did all mm -hmm. these calculations and, you know, working with like the acute conic workload ratio and, and all of that. And now, honestly, when people ask me like, oh, how do you monitor their fatigue and da, 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 and it's like, I just look at them and speak to them. That is literally it. Yeah. I see how they're walking in the gym. I see whether they're joking, whether they're laughing, whether they seem a little bit down or they're bit in a mood or they're, they're low in energy. And then I see how they're performing, right? They're lifting, looks a bit slack this week or their med balls and their jumps don't look as explosive. That's it. I know they're fatigued. And then you speak to them, like, how did you spar? And they might say, oh, I had a really hard spar and I'm feeling a bit bruised. And, and that's it. You know, I used to at the start, I used to come in every session, right? Can you mark your sleep out of 10? Can you mark your energy out of 10? Can you do a jump just so I can get that data and see how it is alongside baseline? And, and really it's just doing it for doing its sake. 
Um, you don't need anything complicated. Now, as, as you say, just speak to them, get that subject subjective data of how they look, how, they, how they're speaking. And then if that's backed up by the numbers on certain things, you know it's probably going to be a, a red flag in most cases. Yeah, I'm not for chasing numbers. Um, I feel like there's more benefits that come from actually doing the movements itself and then having those movements transfer to the sport-specific movements rather than just increasing 1RM. Yeah, 100%, mate. I have to go back, Jeffrey, and and just ask Mm -hmm. you a little bit about the landmine pod specifically. I know it's something that um, I've seen a few coaches sort of debating about on social media, whether it's a quote-unquote of sport-specific movement. You mentioned, you know, maybe testing in that movement is probably not a valuable number because we can't actually affect it too much. Um, what, what are your thoughts on the landmine punch um, being sort of a, a sport-specific movement? I think as a joke, we throw a lot of shade to the landmine <laughs> punch. Right? It's like, oh, you don't know what you're doing. You're just... I feel like um, shitty trainers will always revert to the landmine punch as a Band-Aid for higher quality training but objectively speaking it is a good measure of upper body ballistic power Um, whether that translates into predicting performance itself Mm -hmm. i would argue it's probably a waste of time yeah because if you look at the nature of striking sports there's a lot more punches than the right cross or the rear cross and i'm kind of baffled at how we it's like why don't we test knees why don't we test kicking like why do we only test the right hand right mm-hmm. yeah i 100 get get the the sort of train of thought that you're thinking and i think i guess it comes down to it when you're looking at it whether being good at the landmine punch makes you a more explosive puncher or whether it's just a coincidence that explosive knockout punches happen to be good at that movement it's kind of that's what i always say which one it is isn't it um yeah it's more so explosive punchers display really good landmine punching numbers Hmm. rather than being good at the landmine punch develops knockout power yeah yeah, and I guess there's no real way unless you sort of isolated it and did like a, a case study on it over X amount of times to find out indefinitely. But yeah, I totally, totally get that for sure. And actually, I had it once. I, I, I must admit, I did use it a lot more previously. I don't use it as much now. I tend to mainly use it because some of the fighters link that to punch power. Yep. So if I'm if they're doing it and they're approaching fight night and they're like, right, what did I get last time? And they, they do a landmine throw and it's quicker. They're like, right, I'm, I'm ready for this fight now. I'm hitting powerful. That's where I tend to use it. But funny enough, I had an athlete say to me once, he was like, all right, we're just going to go into a landmine punch. And he said, uh, why, why is it called a landmine punch? Because that's not how I throw my, my right hand. Yeah, exactly. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. You don't throw it that. He's like, yeah. He was like, yeah, I, don't, I wouldn't ever punch in, in that angle. I'd come straight out. I was like, yeah, you got a fair point. And that's kind of what first got me um, thinking about it more. I still do use it um, mostly, as I say, for sort of explosive movements, maybe as like a little bit of uh, a warm-up, extended warm-up. Or mm-hmm. again, if the, if the athlete mentally links that with performance, then there's no way I'm taking it out anyway. Yeah, uh, they, they like doing it. 
Yeah, 100%. And there's a lot to be said for, as you say, when it's the opposite of chasing numbers. Sometimes you get a big benefit in training just if the athlete enjoys it and you get almost yeah. like a placebo exactly. effect of training. So yeah. that's something that also is subjective. It hasn't got objective numbers, but it definitely, definitely works as well. Yeah, I just rank it as very low on the list of priorities on what matters for a combat athlete. Yeah. yeah. Uh, up there being like load tolerance, um, systemic strength, uh, in- increasing the robustness of weak points. I feel like that specific punch itself, it's yeah. very low priority. Yeah, yeah. Let, let's um, let's flow into that then, the robustness stuff. Um mm-hmm sort of looking more, I guess, outside of sessions. I know you're you're big on maybe setting like little post-boxing sessions or post-sports session circuits for your guys to do. Mm-hmm. What, what do they look like and how many times would you recommend that they do those? Um, I prescribe them post-skills training as well as post-SNC training. I like to prescribe them in a low, lower volume, higher frequency fashion. Um, so usually two to four sets of each circuit after each training day, around four to five times a week. Those are the numbers I like. Uh, I'm still playing around with them. I've been using them for probably a year and a half, two years now, but I'm, I'm still tweaking things. I'm adding exercises to the library. I'm seeing what works best for strikers, what works best for grapplers. Um, but I find that beats the high volume kind of um, take on things where you do neck training like once or twice a week and you blast it with like eight or 10 sets and then you're sore the next day. Um, part of the robustness circuits is I'm trying to ingrain a habit of training these weak spots for my athletes. And there's no better way to introduce a habit than to increase the frequency of things and really drill it into these guys' heads. Yeah, how do you, you get buy-in with that? Um, I guess, you know, typically from the fighters I see, they're very focused on their sport. And mm-hmm. S&C, some fighters may see it as something they have to do rather than wanting to do it. So how, how do you tend to go about getting buy-in in terms of getting them to do that at the end of like their skill sessions? The robustness circuits were created to get buy-in from my guys. I would prescribe these throughout like the workout like neck training or i'll prescribe neck training at the end and a lot of them would have skipped it a lot of my online guys um once i put it into a circuit and i gave it a fancy name guys start to take it more seriously i'm like hey uh do these for 10 minutes no rest in between so it feels more like of a workout it feels integrated into the training Instead of, okay, this is a one-off exercise for the neck. Hey, this is a circuit for the neck, for the shoulders, for the lower leg complex. Do these back to back to back. Give me 10 minutes of your time extra, and then you can get out of here. And that's what I always tell my guys. I like that. I like that. Cause you know, it's exactly that. We typically know these guys want to be working hard. So if you can do a little circuit together, like when they feel like they're constantly yeah. working, then obviously that is a great way of getting getting by as well. Have you have you seen uh, in in this sort of two years you've been using them? Have you seen an improvement in terms of like uh, less injuries, less niggles, and, and stuff like that? Um, sub- objectively speaking, you never really know when you've prevented an injury, or you've never know if you made a 
possibly severe injury, less severe. But a lot of a lot of the guys have been saying they feel stronger in sparring, like they feel more robust. They they're more confident in their neck. They're more confident in their wrists. So it's been going well. Yeah, that's great, man. And it's kind of like a very low cost investment where, yeah. even if it might not like reduce the risk of injury that much, it's probably worth it to put it in. Anyways, you have yeah. to do it. 100%. But like, as you were saying, like guys want to feel like they're working hard and it's hard to feel that when you're doing wrist curls. So put it in a circuit, increase the RPE, treat it like a, treat it like part of training. Yeah, hundred percent. And I have to admit, it's something that I've taken and kind of adapted with my guys a little bit as well, where at the end of the SNC, we might do sort of like a core exercise, mm-hmm. um, a yep. neck exercise, and then something where it's weak. If it's their wrist, we'll do some something like wrist curls, like you just mentioned. If it's the elbow, we might do higher volume, like banded pull downs or or something like that. And then also giving them like a five, 10 minute circuit at the end of their boxing sessions. Um, just again, like you said, doing a core exercise because they love doing core, maybe a little bit of partner neck training and, and ticking yeah. off the boxes. And it seems to be working. As you say, you get a lot more better buy-in doing that. And again, post-sparring, what I try and get them to do is just similar, doing a little free four exercise circuit, but just a lot of pulling post-sparring. So mm-hmm. whether that's scarecrows or whatever it is, just trying to yeah. undo all the volume of punches. Um, yeah. And so far, I've been doing that for about three, four months. And so far, it seems to be the biggest benefit actually I've seen is terms of tightness through the shoulders. And I think that is just purely down to the extra volume of pulling posteriorly. Um, that yeah, I do that as well, especially yeah. for boxers or strikers. Mm-hmm. Um, posterior chain work right after skills training, like a lot of rear del, a lot of rotator cuff. And that seems to be working really well. And to be honest with you, like I don't use it as much with my MMA guys because generally speaking, they, I guess it's because it's a younger sport. They yep. tend to be more entwined with the mobility and movement stuff and yoga right. anyways. But with the boxing guys who just like box, box, box as much as you can, they're the ones I'm really seeing the benefit is. And again, you can keep it real low volume because they don't do anything anyways. Even stimulating them with just a little dose of that stuff has a massive impact. Yeah, if you think about it, MMA guys have a wider training variety in their skills training compared to like a narrow focus for boxers. So they're already getting movement variability through the sport itself. And that accounts for a lot of the mobility or movement pattern, movement quality that you see. Exactly, mate. Exactly. Um, so I know you're big on in terms of conditioning, right? We know mm-hmm. we all know conditioning is massive for for combat athletes. You know, no one wants to gas out after a round because you're in big trouble. Your, I guess, one of your principles is trying to get conditioning as much in your skill sessions as possible. So just diving in a little bit of that, what sort of conditioning? methods do you use first and foremost and i guess how would you go about implementing that in, into their skill sessions and, and how do you go about monitoring that this line of thought all started when i was young and i'd watch ufc countdown shows and i'd watch these guys on the treadmill on the airdyne bike and they'd be doing hard intervals everyone says they're training hard and then you watch the fights and you see these guys gas out And there's clearly like a disconnect between the training and the competition. And I feel like to this day, if you're a professional athlete, you're most likely training with enough volume to have good conditioning. Mm -hmm. And I feel like when people gas in competition, it's usually 
they're either being outskilled or they're just not doing well with their pacing strategy. Um, doesn't mean we can't add extra conditioning. I think we just have to be careful with the modalities we're adding, with the volumes we're adding. So with conditioning protocols, how I usually approach it is I look at the baseline training load. How many hours of skills training are you getting in a week? Um, how much of that is really specific to mitt work, sparring, um, drilling? And then I would add maybe one or two non-specific conditioning modalities. Um, lower impact ones would be cycling or swimming. Higher impact ones would be uh, running or sprints or intervals. Um, yeah, most, I try to drill it in most guys' heads. All of the conditioning you're doing or most of it should be really specific, 90 to 95% of it. We should stimulate the energy systems through running and rowing itself. But in terms of combat sports training, that's where you're building the technique. You're building specific conditioning in the muscles that you're using for the fight. And you're using your brain as well. You can never detach conditioning with the brain because you need that skills conditioning with uh high volume yeah yeah 100 i think it is a great point and it definitely sort of like thought-provoking in, in terms of like the traditional conditioning methods one thing i i've used a lot is again doing like bag circuits and stuff like that where you can target certain heart rates whether that's like mostly threshold if you've got a threshold and you're doing your bag work at that sort of threshold level that works really well i do like the assault bike um doing sort of uh, intervals on there i find very similar to what you were saying like these guys are fit they train hard that there's no way that fitness wise is the cause of them gassing out nine times out of ten yes there's a little bit of maybe mindset anxiety and, and and that sort of stuff but again it is a little bit of a disconnect and i think sometimes you maybe get some athletes who aren't really getting fitter they're just really good at running um because they've done it for so long and and i've had a few guys where you take them out and you put them onto something like an assault bike where they're not as comfortable and all of a sudden you see that change up a little bit so i think there's definitely 100 percent um good 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 ideas in terms of what you're saying in, in the skill sessions how would you how would you monitor those skill sessions do you get guys to wear heart rate monitors and, and give them targeted heart rate how would you, for example, let's say if you're doing like a, a red zone session, would you do that in your sports sessions or would that be one of your standalone sort of using a, a different method? Um, I'll get them to wear heart rate monitors if it's possible to because it falls off during sparring sometimes and that's a problem that I've had with a lot of the guys. Um, what I like to say with conditioning is when we add additional con conditioning protocols, we must gain something from them that is normally not gained from sports training itself. And from experience, a lot of guys are missing that kind of red zone, a lactic power repeats mm. kind of in that zone. And that's when I would prescribe heavy bag intervals for them, like a specific 10 seconds on, we go 60 seconds off. We can work on this set of skills in the meantime. And then we're doing two or three blocks of this, for example. 
And then now they're building conditioning that they would do with their sprints or aerodyne, but they're doing it on the heavy bag. Yeah, that's um, that's one of the methods I've used mm -hmm. quite a lot over the last year, 18 months, and seen some great results in terms of the amount of energy they're able to produce repeatedly. Um, mm -hmm. And obviously that that's pretty much as fight specific as you're going to get. It's all explode, recover, explode, recover. And, you know, your regeneration of ATP needs to be efficient. Um, so, yeah, no, that's a that's a really, really good method. And as you say, that a lactic type stuff is key. I actually had um, a guy called Chris Kirk on the podcast and he works at a university up in Liverpool. And he's, do, he's doing like a lot of research on MMA and, and this sort of stuff. And one of the things they're currently looking at is one, the definition of of combat sports and in particular like boxing, whether it should be a high intensity intermittent sport or whether actually it is a high intensity endurance sport because it's intermittent in nature, i.e. throwing combos and then recovering. But in heart rate, it tends to stay up in the red zone. Um, so they they're doing some research on that. And he's also doing a bit of research now into that whole skill session things and seeing whether, for example, you can tick off your aerobic capacity work in skill sessions or whether typically the gaps that you have where your coach is talking to you and then the, the speed at which you go is enough to tick that box or not. So that, that's definitely something I'm interested in seeing once they come out. So they're doing a lot of research into different skill sessions in MMA, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I see those as like observational studies. We're mm -hmm. trying to understand the sport a bit better. I'm not mm -hmm. sure if SNC interventions would be a priority over tactical and strategic like skill session or like um, skill interventions. I feel like at the end of the day, you still need to develop yourself as a great fighter and that these small things like whether boxing is a high intensity intermittent sport or an endurance sport, I don't think it feel, I don't think it matters mm. as much as we would think. Because you can talk to like a boxing coach and they yeah. probably wouldn't give a shit. <laughs> they wouldn't. Right. They wouldn't. At the end of the day, they're, they're interested in is, the, is their fighter getting better? And when, and when you're looking at all levels, really, like technical ability wins, wins. You know, mm -hmm. it's no point being as fit and as strong as all this stuff if you're, if you're rubbish at your sport, essentially, you're not getting any better. At the highest level, you know, they're all going to be fit, they're all going to be well-conditioned, they're all going to be strong. It's how good are you at your sport? That's what we're trying to improve. Even as SNC coaches, we're trying to help that, really. That's what we're trying to do, get yeah. them in a position where physically they can go and technically be better for longer, essentially. So, you know, even when we're looking at conditioning methods, it's like, like you mentioned earlier, what's the best way of improving your fitness? Probably getting better at your sport. So when you're up against someone else, you're not in a position where technical ability is forcing you to maybe have to work a bit more or mentally draining you or whatever it might be. Yeah, I think the next step would be introducing better conditioning practices to prop up skills training itself. So how do we manipulate the work to race ratios and conditioning times and volumes and intensities during sports practice? so that we get these guys learning better. And the next step from that, like I don't have as much control over my guys sparring, but you can manipulate constraints within sparring to get certain outputs. Like if you increase the sparring rounds to five minutes, that does something with the output, that does something with pacing strategies. If you reduce the sparring to one minute, you're creating a sense of urgency with the athletes. 
They're looking for finishes. Um, they're utilizing techniques that they might not be utilizing in a three or five minute round. Yeah. And that so like, that's like mixing the conditioning with skill development, with yeah. skill expression. And that's what I'm like really interested in. And yeah. I want to develop in the next few years. Yeah, that sounds great, man. Do you know what? That's very similar to what I speak to a lot of my amateur boxers about because obviously the amateur boxers, they've got one eye of turning over and sort of getting good level sparring. But the issue comes where they're sparring good level people, i.e. pros, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden they're sparring maybe six or eight rounds. And, and as you say, that changes the pace. It changes the strategy. It changes how you approach the spar. And all of a sudden, if an amateur boxer is sparring eight rounds at a slower intensity, and then on fight night, they've only got three two-minute rounds. And all of a sudden, they got to go hell for leather for those rounds. It's kind of a conflict of what they've been doing. So I always say to my amateur boxers, yes, you know, you can get your longer spars in in that more pro style. But you have to also be doing those short, sharp, you know, two, three-minute mm -hmm. rounds for free. Because yep. your pacing strategy is different. And which obviously calls on different demands from an energetic standpoint. So, yeah, that's really interesting, mate. And we'll definitely have to uh, pick your brains and keep in touch with that sort of stuff as well. Um, I guess on like a final point, I get a lot of questions about my online training, right, in terms of working online with, online, uh, with fighters, and you do a lot of that. What would be, I guess, this is more from like a coach's standpoint who are listening. What would be your differences in your one-to-ones compared to your online how do you go about making that as, I guess, as seamless as possible? Would it be the same? Do you have to do some things differently? How, how does it work? With online training, you're missing a lot of the coaching ability that you're able to put on your athletes in terms of uh, technical coaching with, through the lifts, um, gauging how they feel subjectively. And because you're not in, in there with them in real time, you can't change things on the fly as well. So how I combat that issue is making sure I film a lot of my own videos for each exercise tutorial. This is the way how I want them to be done. Um, look for the details. So you're not like scrambling to find some random video on YouTube. I mean, which I do sometimes. Um, what I do is I have a list of exercises I want to film that I prescribe frequently and I film them myself to my own standard so that they get the, the same coaching experience as they would in person with me, or I, I try to keep it as close as I can. Um, what else? Yeah, that's mainly it. You can't keep them as accountable mm -hmm. during the session, but I've had no problems with my guys uh, finishing the sessions for the week. You just have to, you, you can't treat online training like some sort of passive income. You don't want to, I don't send people programs and then tell them to fuck off for a few months. I'm checking in with them at least two or three times a week for sure at the end of the week to see how they're doing. I'll update the next week accordingly. And it's probably a lot more work than people think. It is, mate. It is. Well, what is that out of interest? What does your check-in process look like? What sort of things are you asking them? Is it, do you have like a check-in form they fill out? Is it more just, you know, go, I know like a lot of my guys are just go back and forth with voice notes and stuff like that. How does your check-in process work? A mixture of like formal and informal questions. Sometimes I ask them like, hey, how are you feeling? Um, have you finished all of the SNC sessions for the week? 
did you manage to get everything in the schedule or did you have to move things around? And then sometimes their schedule shifts and we just have to be flexible for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great, mate. That's great. Sam, mate, that was really good. Loads of our page full of notes here i'm definitely definitely going to after this pick your brains a little bit more on the conditioning side of things um it's kind of the area i'm most interested in i guess because i think pretty much any fighter could go in the gym and have a good go at getting stronger i think it's pretty you know self-explanatory you lift heavier weights you're getting stronger Mm -hmm. but the conditioning side of things for some reason from what i see there's a big hole in terms of how people are going about it um so that's definitely something i'm going to speak to you about um but before we sign off did you want to just drop how people can find you on your socials uh where they can find your ebook as well which i highly recommend they purchase and and they read because it's really good um and then just anything else you want to you want to promote mate the floor is yours um i'm pretty active on instagram at gcp training uh website you can find my big four strength and power programs you can find the ebook it's out in spanish as well so that's uh, gcperformancetraining.com. Tons of articles there I've written over the past five or six years. So I'll, I'll, I put out a lot of free content. You can learn a lot from my articles that I don't get people to pay for. And I'm going to keep them up until who knows whatever. But yeah, a lot of people like to ask me a lot of questions on Instagram. I just send them to my articles. Like I've answered most of these within articles over the past few years. And I just tell people to do their homework. No, it's good. I always see your, uh, you're probably one of the best actually for the, the question and answers that go around. I, uh, yeah, I try to them. stay consistent on that. Yeah, no, yeah. they're really it's good. fun for me. I get to be a little cheeky sometimes, and then I get to be really informative at times. And then sometimes I get challenging questions. Sometimes I get stupid questions. It's like, it's fun. It's yeah, I, I like it, man. I think, you know, I like to see, you know, coach other coaches with, with personalities as well, because I think sometimes you will take this a bit too seriously. It's nice for people's yeah, exactly. personalities to come across. And, you know, we have to remember we are just people first and then strength coaches after. So, yeah. you know, I, I always have a giggle at the uh, the sort of tongue-in-cheek ones you put out sometimes. So uh, Yeah, when, when people ask me about CrossFit for combat sports, I'm like, all right, <laughs> I, I'm going to find some memes now for this <laughs> you gotta you gotta have, keep yourself entertained sometimes haven't you yeah exactly all right mate. what i'll do i'll pop um all your details in the link and when i drop it i'll put a link to like your ebook and stuff like that um but thank you very much for your time mate really appreciate it, it as a cracking episode thanks for having me mate